0: You are listening to the Ibn Abi Umar Podcast. This is your host, Umar Osman. We've got a great episode today. I'm really excited to have Sana Saeed from AJ Plus on the podcast. She's someone whose work I have followed for a while and I really respect her take on community issues and the perspective that she offers. In this episode, we get into a lot of topics around the broader theme of just how we talk about issues in our community, how we react to major events, how we react to things like community scandals, how we talk about objectivity in the media, understanding media narratives, bias, empathy, navigating complex online discussions. We'll get into a lot of topics here, and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. If you'd like to connect with Sana, the links to her social media are on the show notes so check those out and of course this episode is sponsored by my book fiqh of social media please make sure you grab a copy if you haven't already and with that here's the little fiqh of social media promo and then we'll get right into the episode the brand new book fiqh of social media timeless islamic principles for navigating the digital age by Omar usman and with a foreword by sheikh abdul Nasser Jangda is now available to purchase on Amazon. Praised by multiple prolific Islamic speakers and scholars, the book serves as a guide on how to maintain your spiritual integrity online, navigate the ever-changing landscape of social media, applying prophetic etiquettes online, using social media as a tool for spiritual development and much more. Visit IbnAbiOmar.com to learn more. Assalamu alaikum everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. We're joined by Sina Saeed from AJ+. Plus. Uh, Sina, thank you for joining the podcast. How are you doing?
1: I'm Alhamdulillah. Great. Assalamu alaikum everyone.
0: So we ran into each other on Clubhouse recently and you gave me a crash course on how to moderate a room, which I had not done before. Uh, but it's been an interesting experience. And one thing that I've noticed has become a hub for Muslims to get together and talk about things and you know, kind of trying to lurk I've sat in on a ton of rooms, heard a lot of conversations, but it's been an an interesting insight. What have you noticed so far in your time on Clubhouse?
1: Yeah. Um, By the way, you did really well with moderating that group. Thank you. (laughs) I was glad I could be there in your first room. I think what we got like 200 people in that room. I
0: I start the room started as a joke. Like, Yeah, and yeah,
1: yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it just blew. And once you open it up, because it was private, and then you opened it up and it was just like, I don't know, everyone's like, ooh, like joined, and it became huge. Um, yeah, Muslim clubhouse is its own beast. Uh, and it's been really interesting navigating it. Uh, I made a very conscious decision, like within the first couple of weeks, to not actually participate in too many serious discussions. Like there were a few serious discussions that I, was a part of initially. And I am very grateful for being a part of them, but, um, a, just because the app and the platform is still relatively new, don't know much about issues of privacy yet. Um, and the way that clubhouse kind of just is because you are it's voice to voice, right? It's not just text or whatever, the way you have other um, uh, social media platforms. And so because of that, there's like this level of intimacy and it's very easy to let down your guard. So I kind of made it a very, like I've made a very conscious decision not to um, participate in too many or many, um, you know, serious quote unquote, the discourse conversations. Mm. But I will say it's been really interesting to see, um, like there is very clearly a hunger Uh, amongst, especially like, you know, our generation, or maybe even a bit younger, um, to talk about big issues. Uh, But what's been interesting is oftentimes, not always, sometimes they're really smart, informed conversations. But oftentimes, the discussions aren't necessarily um, led by any informed uh, opinion, but rather just opinions, which is fine. I mean, that's how a lot of conversations happen. Um, but then it becomes a question of, well, once you start getting an audience of a couple hundred people, what is your responsibility then? This is not, you know, a casual conversation between friends. It becomes like something with an audience. So it's been really interesting to see Muslim, Muslim Clubhouse um, and how, it, how the various kind of communities within Muslim Clubhouse navigate and try to have these conversations. And um, what are the ways in which debates are had like you know because we see how these debates are had on platforms like facebook and twitter and they're never pretty and i think clubhouse has been really interesting in that regard it kind of it's been cool to see often not always but often it's been cool to see some really well moderated smart debates as well
0: what are some topics that you've heard good or discussion that was healthier on clubhouse as compared to maybe other platforms
1: So one, which I really thought was extremely helpful. It happened, uh, I believe yesterday time is like absolutely non-existent um, right now in the pandemic, but especially with clubhouse, like you don't even know when was the last time you had a particular conversation. This wasn't a debate as much as it was a discussion. And it was looking at, um, it was basically like spiritual abuse or sexual abuse, like different kinds of abuse by clergy, so to speak. Um, I don't like using that word for, for, uh, for leaders in the muslim community but that was a term used um so looking at spiritual sexual abuse that um when it's done by muslim clergy and, i was in there
0: um, and i was actually on the i raised my hand to ask a question and i ended up sitting on the little speaker's pane for like 30 minutes <laughs>
1: Yeah, when, when, you're, when you're like sitting there in the speakers, you're like, ugh. Uh, but I really enjoyed that because I thought it was a very intelligent um, and informed because it was coming from people who do the work, right? Um, and uh, I mean, it was like Alia uh, Salam um, par- who was part of FACE. Um, and it was a very, like, I thought it was a needed conversation for a lot yeah. of people on that platform because uh, there have been other attempts at those kind of conversations, but not from those who have to do that difficult work, um, who are on the front lines. And so I appreciated. I was in and out of the conversation because I was like dealing with like, you know, um, having other conversations on, on, in another room, but I really appreciated that, um, room. And I thought that was really smart. Um, I'm trying to think of, there were a couple of rooms on, and these were like the hot rooms of last week on Sunisha relations, which oh, God. I think which, you know, the first one to me was a mess. I was like, Oh my God, the first one was just a mess. The second one, um, I enjoyed it because I, I actually learned quite a bit. I didn't, I felt a little uncomfortable with the moderation of the room and I can get into that a bit later, but I did learn a lot that, um, you know, that I, I enjoyed, uh, but I, I thought the moderation could have been a bit better. Um, for various reasons, but those were interesting. Uh, Those were interesting rooms. Um, And yeah, and there's been a lot, like some people honestly, like they'll schedule rooms in advance. So, you know, you can kind of prep and then there are the rooms that are just like, I have an opinion and I'm throwing it out there and making this room on the spot. And um, yeah, there's a lot that just kind of, to be honest, like, I'm like, I get a headache. I'm like, oh, I can't do this. I can't do this right now.
0: So the the face room is actually an interesting one because Like I said, I was on the speaker's panel to ask a question, but you know, everyone they see that you join, and then they assume that you're speaking on the panel, yeah. and so everyone assumed I was a speaker, and my phone started blowing up with messages um, asking what I'm doing there, what I'm, you know, what, am I talking about something, etc. And I think this might actually almost inadvertently be a good case study for what I really wanted to talk to you about, which was how our opinions get formed, and I think one thing that you know, in particular with this issue, with clergy abuse, spiritual abuse, and so on, there are so many different factors that come into play. So in the clubhouse session, for example, uh, you know, Sister Ali and the other presenters from FACE were talking about how they take an approach based on trying to protect and advocate for the victim. You have another conversation that happens on the side, usually from, you know, usually from brothers and oftentimes people that are well-networked with imams saying, well, you know, That's cool and all, but we need to be more worried about the idea of false accusations because then they'll bring all their reasons. And, well, what if someone gets hypothetically accused of something false, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you have these multiple conversations, almost like two ships passing in the night. How do you navigate those conversations? Because everyone, you know, it's not even really a Muslim issue. Everyone's taking their cues from even if we go out to like me, too. It's kind of the same debate back and forth. We just have a little bit of a religious twist on it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it is really, um, it's a tough one to navigate, to be completely honest, because it's one I struggle with a lot. Um, I am for sure sympathetic uh, to the idea of um, kind of advocacy from a victim's rights perspective, um, because I do think... I think sometimes there is, and, and and I was glad they were clarifying this also last night, right? Is that when we, when we hear the term like "believe women," right? Um, I think what's interesting is people always think that that means, um, oh, uh, like believe women, no matter what, like this idea that you just believe them, they're hundred percent right, no matter what. And when in reality, what it means is that if, this, if the starting point is is that like because usually what happens is like especially when we have. A, women victims of of abuse. And in particular, whether it's physical abuse or it's emotional or sexual abuse, um, there's immediately a questioning of the victimhood, right? Whereas like, I mean, think if someone tells you, oh blah, 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 I got stabbed, for instance, like we right. don't question that person who has like it's not something we initially, we're not like,
0: Really
1: got I'm not really sure if you got stabbed. Like, well, what were you, you know, it's not, it's more like, well, what was going on? I mean, yes, people will question kind of the circumstances and whatnot, but you don't question per se that like this person was victimized in some way when they got stabbed or robbed or whatever. And I think like when I hear something like believe women, it's, I don't actually think it's a great, <laughs> I don't think it's a great like topic for like a great, sorry, uh, phrase from a PR perspective because uh, people oftentimes misinterpret it. I think what it really means is that, you know, if someone is, you know, especially in particular women, right? Because they're, they're the ones who are disproportionately impacted by this, but they're certainly not alone in being impacted by this. Um, that the idea is that we are not coming from, that those of uh, anyone who is who is in this situation or, or looking at it or is advocating or, or doing advocacy is not coming from the perspective of um, of questioning if someone is a victim or not. Um, because we don't do that for other, like we, that's not the starting point for other, um, uh, people who may be victims of different kinds of crimes or wrongdoings and so on and so forth. Um, and especially because oftentimes, um, especially for women to come forward women, and especially if men are coming forward with allegations of like sexual, spiritual abuse, it's not easy. So you're putting a lot on the line. And so for me, that particular you know, kind of tug and pull isn't as hard. It's a complicated in different ways, but it's not that hard, I think, once you understand what's a term like believe women or what victim uh, rights-based advocacy is actually advocating for. That being said, I do have a problem with sometimes the the discourse in the way that we uh, talk about certain things, right? And so, and I've noticed this a lot and you know, like terminology matters, words matter. I was, um, you know, recently having a conversation with friends and I relayed, and it wasn't me personally. I was talking about, I, I even mentioned the individual. I was just talking about a situation of, of sexual harassment. And this individual who I was speaking with mentioned, oh, well, like was repeating the story back to me and said, I can't believe that was like sexual assault. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's, it was not sexual assault. This was, a case of sexual harassment, and we need to be careful not to conflate the two as well, right? And I think um, what I see happening a lot right now, which is a little worrying to me, is when we end up conflating different, different wrongdoings, crimes, sins as being Something that they may not be as well, um, and so that's something that I that i I've been thinking a lot about in in the way that we the words that we use because precision matters. Precision yeah. matters a lot. It matters for both the victims and it matters for you know even perpetrators. I don't care about like you know the feelings of perpetrators, but I do care about um, like as a journalist accuracy right? Like that's what matters to me is that we're being precise and accurate with the language we use. And this isn't something specific to the Muslim community, but in general, I've seen that like we've gotten a bit um, loosey-goosey, for lack of a better term. I mean, one thing that I've noticed is
0: like with these discussions, it ends up being we project the most extreme version of the other opinion on each other. And so even if you're, you know, saying harassment versus assault, in the other person's mind, they're just assuming the worst case scenario and then saying, well, since it's not this worst case scenario, it's either not a big deal or not true.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, and that happens unfortunately a lot too. And it's so—that's why this stuff is so—it's um, so hard. It's very hard to navigate. Like I, it's something I'm still learning. And I make, and like you know, as a woman who's faced harassment, who's been you know put in situations that were uncomfortable and out of my control, and and I, like even then it's like something that you don't know how to always navigate in a way that is mindful of everyone and is also on top of that, like I said, as a journalist, like I'm being accurate and precise. Um, And I think one of the things that we sometimes don't do as much is like um, sometimes show a bit more, like be merciful with one another. If like we may misspeak or kind of miss like, understand certain things and whatnot, which is something I've seen a bit on Clubhouse, which I appreciate is that not always, but I've seen it often enough where like, there seems to be more space on, you know, Clubhouse for people to, to learn than there are maybe on other social media platforms. Right. Um, And so... Yeah, it's it's a tough it's honestly, like I said, it's it's a tough one to navigate. Um, and I think it's just a matter. Sometimes it's a matter of just like staying silent and listening to like, how are these conversations evolving? And those who are at the forefront of like advocacy on whatever ends, um, how are they talking about it and presenting it? So someone like Alia is someone I really look up to because I I think that she has taken on a. Her and Face, like all all the volunteers at Face, all the, everyone who works at Face, um, have taken on a a job that I do not envy, yeah. Um, and a position which I think is truly pioneering in our community, uh, and it's not going to be easy for them. I mean, it hasn't been easy for them, but it's you know they're 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 doing something um, that I think is going to impact. The way we talk about these things in a positive way, and I kind of got that from that, you know, the the discussion um, yesterday. So that was uh, February fourteenth um, uh, when this conversation was being had, and uh, and I think like if we have if we have these conversations more, then the better equipped people will be on whatever side that you I mean, it's weird to me that we have sides right. when it comes to like issues of victims and these survivors of like, you know, a, a various types of abuse. It's weird to me to have sides on that. Right. Like, um, especially because I'm like, the law is technically always on the side of the perpetrators or the alleged perpetrators. Right. In the sense that under like, you know, especially in the United States, right. You're, 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 you're innocent until proven guilty. That's, that's something, I mean, questionable when you're like a part of the Muslim community and being like, you know, first, like, I mean, yeah, that's a whole other conversations, but, but technically, right. You are innocent until proven guilty. And so it's just interesting to me that we do have um, people taking sides when we have instances like these come up um, as opposed to kind of just maybe sit and wait and see what the information is, if it comes out as well.
0: So when it, so when it comes to sides, here's, This is my observation and I don't know how accurate it might be, but I feel whether we're talking about an issue of like, let's say clergy abuse, or even if we're debating, let's say racism and Black Lives Matter, right? It could be completely separate, you know, issues, but I feel like the sides form around the same talking points where one is looking at who was harmed or who was oppressed or who is the victim and trying to remedy immediately, hey, something bad has happened. And we need some type of justice for it, right? And then I think on the other side, there, you know, again, side, but the other side is always, there's an attitude of, okay, yeah, we get that something happened, but the way that you want to fix it, hypothetically may lead to all these other wrong things. And then that's where you have an impasse. And I feel like no matter what the issue is, the camps kind of fall along that dividing line. I don't know if that makes sense, or if you've noticed something similar, but, you know, if we take the example of race, for example, it's always, well, you know, people shouldn't be violent when they protest or they shouldn't loot or this or that. And the discussion always comes back to, well, someone, something bad happened, but people want to focus on the reaction instead of the root cause. I don't know if that, maybe that explains a little bit better.
1: I mean, yeah, like that. And that's why I, you're right. In terms of whenever we do have any sort of major uh, event take place where, Or a major moment, a political moment, or whatever. It does seem as though you have two primary sides, whether it's within our own community or in kind of the broader uh, society. Two sides always emerge, and it is really the same talking points being regurgitated. And it's um, it's, and I think a lot of that is honestly like mitigated by the platforms we're on. It really is. Like, I don't think we we really, um, I mean, there are two things, right? One is like the fact that media coverage is always the same, but it's primarily always the same on these issues. And so a lot of people get talking points from what they're being, shown and what they're hearing, uh, and the way in which a story is framed, um, by major news networks and major news coverage. Right. And I think another end is like a lot of people get their talking points from more social media outlets as well, which can be great sometimes and sometimes not so great. Uh, and so I think because that's, we've been seeing this for the last, I don't know, six, seven years in particular, as we've gotten more integrated, um, with, I would say, yeah, within the last six, seven years, we've become even more integrated with social media platforms than ever before. These conversations become cyclical and thus exhausting because it feels yeah. like everyone's going in circles and those circles are never, ever touching, right? It's just like the same conversations uh, again and again. And yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I don't agree with one cycle like more than the right. other i absolutely do um but it does get exhausting when it's like okay well how do we move on from this conversation into a way which is maybe more productive as well right i hope that answered your question
0: yeah well i was gonna say how do we i so i feel i'm in the same situation right where we keep spending our no matter what issue it is it falls into those two circles do you think well let me start with this how much role does that media narrative play in how they frame the stories like you know personally i feel sometimes the media narrative will always reinforce a certain power dynamic right whether it's uh institutional like whoever's in power etc if it's you know like it's like me too is going to reinforce the men that are in power because they have their good old boys club etc when it comes to race obviously there's you know I mean, there's so many examples of the media bias and how uh, black people are portrayed versus white people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the capital riots being like the most glaring recent example of, you know, in terms of framing. For the Muslim community, how do we get maybe, I know everyone gets it, right? Because we see how Muslims are portrayed, but why do those, why does that, logic stop working when it happens to other groups? Like why do we recognize when it happens to us, but we can't recognize when it happens to black people or to women or to, you know, another marginalized group?
1: So I would actually kind of push back a little bit and say, I don't think we, we, I don't think we all recognize it when it happens to us. I I think one of the things that really kind of takes me back, uh, like, you know, like surprises me a bit um, is when I do meet a lot of smart Muslims, young, old, all various backgrounds who regurgitate a lot of tropes that are in the mainstream media about us, right? And and, and, and it's like the way in which Muslims will otherize other Muslims, foreign Muslims, um, or use the language of like, uh, quote-unquote radicalization and extremism without realizing that I'm like do you not know that these terms are created <laughs> for a very specific propagandistic like reason and that like, there is no science behind you know like what is radicalization what is extremism even in the way that it's used and, uh, and kind of was was not unique to but was really kind of gained momentum in the um so-called war on terror and how it was used to criminalize our communities and anyone who was like and still is used to criminalize anyone who practices islam right and maybe looks a certain way and acts a certain way and so on and so forth so i do see i do think like muslims i think we recognize certain tropes right there's certain things that we recognize as being like oh those are those are bad about us but i do think there are certain things that Uh, we consume about ourselves that we are not questioning enough um, and don't see them for what they are. Because I think there are a lot of Muslims who don't see themselves in those stories. They see other Muslims in those stories. And so they, so the media is a very, very powerful machine. Right. And I think people forget that, you know, one of the greatest tools that anyone can have is information. And as journalists, we are in the business of disseminating information, not just, sorry, disseminating information, but gathering, filtering, giving structure and a narrative to information. So we are extremely powerful in that regard. And I don't think enough people realize that when you get a new story, whatever the story is, that uh, you're getting it through a filter. The facts might all be right, but the facts are always being delivered to you in a filter. And I think the reason why, you know, so often... A lot of people in our community, um, and I think many do, but I think a lot of people in our community don't see the way in which certain media narratives are created. For instance, uh, take, for example, the way that um, uh, Black Americans are talked about in, in the news media and even beyond, right, like police brutality, like just in general, I think the reason why there isn't always or there isn't much critical engagement with that and I I do see it changing a bit Um, but then again I don't know exactly how representative social media is really but I think the reason for that is is that when you have grown up being fed the same narratives again and again and again and again to completely to see that I mean you don't see it anymore because it just blends in like that is just what you know you don't like Uh, you don't reconsider it until you are forced to reconsider it. And I'm talking specifically about, obviously, non-Black Muslims here, right? I'm not talking about those who actually are impacted by these narratives. And so when you're not directly impacted by particular narratives, you do not see um, patterns in the way a story is told. You do not see what language is used or how that language is used to paint a certain uh, picture. You do not see how victims are rendered into... Um, into the perpetrators all of a sudden right like we like the way in which children like young black boys who've been killed um are made into the aggressors whether it's you know like i think you know whether it's trayvon martin or it's Tamir rice like young black boys who are then somehow made into like the scary monsters because of the way in which michael brown another example um because we, because the, the news media, and it still does this, is like elevates um, the perpetrators of violence over the victims, right? Um, and I think like, and that's a core thing that unfortunately we see happen way too often in our mainstream media is that the perpetrators of violence are the ones who get greater and more sympathetic coverage oftentimes, I mean, certain kinds of violence than um, those who are victimized by that violence, oh, right?
0: Is that why like why is that is it as simplistic as because the storytellers identify with them more like because they have more affinity toward each other or they you know they're the same race or same background or something else
1: yeah i mean i think so i think it's 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 a few few of those things so i think yes like you know Oftentimes, journalists of color are you'll hear this from so many black and brown journalists as well. Right. Is that maybe they're taken off a story or they feel like they can't do certain stories because they're told explicitly or implicitly that they're too close to the story. Right. Like we've heard so many times, like so many black journalists have been uh, penalized by um their media companies because they maybe tweeted something or they um, you know, whatever, were seen somewhere and then they're penalized by their um or they were seen like at a protest and even though they were covering it as a journalist weren't seen as being quote unquote impartial. But what we never question, we never question this in our industry and outside of it is then what if 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 the governing structures of this country are rooted in white supremacy, right, then what does that say about white journalists who then cover issues, uh, white journalists and their proximity to white supremacy in covering issues where, you know, uh, it is is a question at its root about white supremacist violence, right, Right. or white violence on, on black and brown bodies. Like, what does that mean? And I do think, and again, I think this is something that is, uncomfortable for many people to, to hear, but I do think the reason why we see, you know, four years of Trump and we saw so many articles humanizing like white supremacists, right? Oh, like, yeah. Why are they Nazis? Well, they're just poor, which is like a huge other issue. This idea that because you are working class and white, therefore you naturally become like a white supremacist. I'm like, oh my God, this, the and that's a whole class is a whole other thing. But we saw such sympathetic coverage. We saw the glorification of, what was his name? Uh, i so Richard Spencer, right? Yeah. Like the dapper Nazi, same thing with yeah. Gavin McKinnis. Like they're so interesting. They're so, oh my God, so unique and like different and handsome and they, they fool you. And it's like, what are we doing? Because yeah. no journalist of color would ever do that. No black or brown journalist would be like, check out this dapper Nazi. It's just not something, you know why? Because. We're like, these men, these individuals are... Whether rhetorical or actual, like perpetrators of violence, and why would you want to look at them through the lens of like fashion or oh my god, who saw like the nice white boy next door uh, who real who thought that he could ever be you know a Nazi and like literally every black and brown person was like oh, we did like yeah, yeah that's that's literally how it turns out. Um, but it was so yes, there is that element of of I think familiarity and unfortunately in journalism when we talk about things like objectivity, um, what we we don't realize that objectivity is being defined by white people and it's being defined primarily by white men as well um, because no one ever questions the proximity of white journalists to white supremacy again when they're covering these stories it's not really a, a question that's brought up and i think the, the other thing
0: how are they how are they defining objectivity that's problematic because in you know in all these same discussions even with other muslims this seems to be the fallback point that we're trying to be objective and not be swayed by emotional rhetoric or this or that. So we're, you know, that the objectivity becomes the crutch to hold on to certain talking points.
1: The problem is, is that I think I really do. Like, I do not believe in objectivity. Like, I do not believe that objectivity is possible because we, like, we are all
0: everyone has a bias.
1: Everyone has a bias. Absolutely. Everyone has a bias. And so, and we're all kind of, and everything that we are putting out goes through a filter of some sort. Like I said, you can have all the facts, but that doesn't mean that that's the story, right? Like I think too often we think, well, if the facts are presented and it is a factual story, therefore this is the true story. And we forget how like, you know, you can have, you could have the omission of certain facts. You can have facts that are presented to you with certain languages and all like, and, and that's the thing, like when we're even making headlines as journalists, right? Like I, I do headlines for a lot of my pieces. Often it's a very conscious effort that you're going through because you want to evoke something you want to, you know, the language that's used is, per, it's never accidental. When you see certain language used, it's purposeful. Right. And so when people say we need to be objective and not emotional, I mean, it makes me kind of laugh because I'm like, like when is the last time you act like how would they define objectivity right like the way that it's often um defined in our industry is like object like objective truth would be something that is presented as factual and can be you know uh, something that can be verified and is um,
0: well, even that's uh, challenged now, right?
1: Yeah, of course, that's what I mean. Like if that's how you know, you can also say that you're presenting perspectives from different. You're, or sorry, you're 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 presenting perspectives from different vantage points. Is that objective? But then you know, my pushback would be, well, would you would you give the victim and the perpetrator the same amount? Of like words on a page are they equal if someone is is an accuser of like this person committed an act of violence against me let's say it could be a person or a group of people and then you have the the alleged perpetrators of violence are they equal in our industry right and i as a journalist i'm like i didn't get into journalism because i believe that you know the slave and the slave owner are equal or that the you know murderer and the murdered are equal like that's not what i don't think what what journalism itself actually should be because if the entire point of journalism is to hold um, power accountable power isn't just I I don't even think we do that that well in this country but power isn't just like you know the government and 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 you know wall street and and of course it is that but it's not just that it's also like when you have a power imbalance between two parties like again the occupied and the occupier they're not equal they don't have the same story and there is one that whose narrative i think ultimately ends up being more important to tell than the other one
0: so when when people tell stories that identify or empathize with those in power, how do we get people to empathize with those not in power or try to see things from the other perspective when the dominant narrative is always the opposite?
1: That's a really good question. And it's a very tough question. Um, I spent, I think, a good chunk of my adult life um, in so many, just constantly engaged in arguments, trying to uplift, um, you know, the, 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 the narratives and the stories of those who are the oppressed in a situation, whether it's an individual or a group of people. And ultimately there are people who will never change their minds. And I think that is something that when you are fighting for justice, you have to remember that the fight for justice is a struggle itself. And um, and you can fight for justice in various ways. Like I think there are journalists, for instance, who who fight for justice every single day in the stories they they choose to tell and how they choose to tell them. Um, and I think one thing you need to realize is that the reason why the fight for justice for an individual or for, the, for a group of people is always a struggle is because you will always have people, you always have naysayers, you will always have people who will side with the ones or the one who holds power in a situation. And oftentimes, like, you know, the people who hold power in a situation, whether it's a person or a group of people or a government, uh, they hold that, that power because they hold a position that, uh, that has a level of authority and thus legitimacy right whether we're talking about a particular state whether we're talking about a particular spiritual leader or someone whose job is to quote unquote serve and protect um that for the majority of people, they are seen as, or they are positioned as having a level of authority. And therefore, and in that authority, you don't have authority without having some level of legitimacy.
0: Right.
1: And so very so, it, there will be people who naturally always will side with, unfortunately, those who hold power in a particular situation. What I learned, however, is that ultimately when You're in that situation where you're presented with a story where there is clearly, you know, a perpetrator and a victim. Logically, it makes no sense to be on this, not just morally, but logically, it doesn't make sense to be, oftentimes, it doesn't make sense to be, on the side of the perpetrator. And I think what's been really successful for me on an individual level, and on a level of even sometimes the work that I've done and that I've seen my, some of my brilliant colleagues do as well, is that you need to be able to break down the logic of those who think that the perpetrator of violence is the one who is oppressed.
0: What about when they dress that up with religious justifications?
1: I mean, that's always the most painful part when they're like trying to do with religious justifications. But then like, unfortunately, like all religions, right, like you can find anything to justify anything as well. And for me, it comes down to uh, like, what are the basic principles in our faith? And like, you know, if... And what are the also examples, you know, what are the prophetic examples also before us? Like I've been in those situations where, or not I've been in those situations, but I have witnessed those conversations where, you know, um, a particular uh, leader in the community is accused of like a b c d and 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 inappropriate behavior and then all of a sudden a brigade of young men and old men or whoever usually young men come forward with like all the things to quote from all the different like you know yeah. islamic literature etc cetera, etc cetera. and the greatest irony to me is that i'm like you have all of these quotes, right, which I'm like, and I can find you, you know, similarly things from the Hadith and from the Quran and the examples from the Sunnah as well, which will absolutely advocate the opposite. And I can make it, that argument extremely well. And But what's interesting to me is like they never come on the principle of just like humanity, like that basic. Yeah,
0: there's an empathy gap
1: of empathy, there's such a massive empathy gap where I'm like, you have chosen willingly to side with someone who stands accused of really vile behavior without also, I mean, it's also funny to me because they're like, they haven't even heard all the facts <laughs> like, they, you know, and they'll accuse the other side, other side, right? The people who are like, hey, someone claims to be victimized. We should like advocate for them and make sure that they're okay and they receive justice, you know, if, if this is the case they accuse the other side of not knowing all the facts while they have decided that we will side with the uh, alleged perpetrators of a crime or a sin or a moral transgression, whatever it is. And so it always boggles my mind when that happens. Um, but like I said, what I've seen works really well, sometimes, not always, because I do think this is a really tough battle, is that when you start logically dissecting those arguments and when they come dressed with like religious, you know, um the religious flair, so to speak, right. When they come with those arguments, I mean, sometimes like you have to also do the same thing. Sometimes that also helps. Um, but it also comes down to asking those questions that, you know, like a really important question I think is to ask them like, so what would you, how would you handle this situation? If yeah, a but- woman came to you, let's say an alleged abuse, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, um, at the hands of maybe your husband or at the hands of a local imam and spiritual leader, what do you think is the best course of action for her to take? And I found that when you ask people that question who are on the other side, so to speak, they don't have an answer because yeah. they are the, because in these situations the the irony again is is that they'll be like oh my god look at these sjw's they're so reactionary and when in reality they're the ones who are very reactionary right they're yeah, the ones yeah. with the knee jerk reactions to always side with those who are accused of a moral transgression or a sin or a crime
0: a lot of these issues right that we've talked about they can get very complex They can get very detailed or, you know, very detailed. You'll hear, depending on who you're following, you'll hear, you know, almost opposite stories. What's your advice for someone to critically navigate these things, right? Because to some extent, it feels overwhelming too. Like, how am I supposed to dig into all of these issues or you know people are saying abolish the police someone else is saying you know black lives matter is this you know do i just inundate myself in research that's not within everyone's capacity either but how do you critically just navigate the media and you know just to make sure that you're not getting led down the wrong path
1: i think that's actually really hard to do um to I think one of the things that we've really lost is uh, as a Muslim community and in general, I think is like akal. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think we use, um, and I don't mean reason in that kind of like Western hegemonic way. Like, I really mean critical thinking and critically engaging with what it is that we're consuming. Um, You know, there are the way that also a lot of social media platforms work, which is how we interact with one another and we have these conversations to begin with those platforms don't allow for nuance. They don't allow for complicated truths. Like someone can, we don't, and and therefore we don't allow for like, imperfections in stories as well. Right. Mm, like yeah. we don't, we, we think for instance, like victims have to be angelic and perfect and so on and so forth. And that perpetrators have to be evil and disgusting all the time. And that, like, and I don't think we allow anymore for sometimes a little bit of that complicated nature of these things and trying to understand like, why would someone support this perspective? Yeah. Right. I, I'm, I'm, and I don't mean like, you know, like why is someone a Nazi? I should try to understand yeah. this. I don't mean like that. I don't mean that. I mean a bit more like, um, you know, when when it's not rooted in completely dehumanizing entire groups of people and advocating for genocide. Um, But I don't think we take the time to really analyze positions and why certain things make sense. I also don't think that oftentimes people advocate, I think a lot of people advocate great ideas, but I don't think they advocate it in a way that is accessible to people and actually helps their cause, right? Um, so I know a lot of people who are extremely ve- well versed in why the police should be abolished and what they oh, mean by that.
0: That's exactly that's- the example I was thinking of. Yeah
1: like there are a lot of people who can give you a very beautiful succinct answer to that and but they're not the ones who always get the platform and they're not the one you know and instead you'll get people who be like yeah um you know abolish the police or abolish ice and and um and then they'll be challenged like okay can you explain that and they don't know because I think sometimes we end up adopting slogans and we end up adopting ideas that are, I think are good right but um, we don't do the work to actually understand why are these good. Why are these ideas good, or why are these ideas even out there, and why who is actually. Um, uh, advocating for them like something like abolishing the police is not something that just emerged out of nowhere that's something that's been a rallying cry a a a, a politic for for decades at this point right and it's been rooted in uh in radical black politics that's not something new it's not something that emerged simply on twitter and therefore like it is something that's rooted in a in a history uh and uh, 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 there's a history there's a there's a lot of literature on that history as well. And uh, and it's been really unfortunate, like, to see the disservice that's that's been done to even that, like, idea. Because even, let's say, you don't agree with that idea. I do think everyone should at least engage on it in an intelligent way. And we don't do that anymore because we become, we all just become so, we, we all just, like deal in knee-jerk reactions to everything. Like you hear something and immediately you just resort to like, you're wrong and uh, I don't want to hear this. And and again, like I'm talking about, I'm not talking about anything that's like explicitly racist or right, something. Right. Like I'm like, I just shut that down and move on. Like, I don't, I don't even think people should be engaging with that stuff, obviously. But um, I do think that, you know, if you're out there and you're trying to figure out like, hey, what's the truth or what does this mean? I mean, it's really about like, And i know a lot of people don't want to hear this but the one thing that i'm trying to revisit in my life like uh, i don't know if you know this but i've actually left most social media that i use right i'm off twitter uh, i'm off facebook i'm barely on instagram like really just to keep in touch with people here and there um and i'm really just on clubhouse because that just happened and i'm like all right it's a little little less um i mean that's a. from the pandemic It's, yeah, it's like, it's a nice, you know, when you've been completely isolating throughout this pandemic, it's a nice, like, way to socialize with people. That's why I also don't really engage in too many serious conversations on there because I'm like, "Uh, I'm just looking to kind of socialize with people a little bit. But, you know, I found that, like, what I'm trying to do is kind of wean myself off of social media and actually go back to something which I think is really important. If you are interested in these issues and it's so simple and it's just reading. Like, it really is just reading. And I don't, and I think, like, people will say, like, well, you should be able to, you know, um, like I don't think you need to read fancy books and everything in order to uh, to understand or make an argument, but I... Do think that we need to be able, like if you're going to argue for a perspective or a policy, you need to know what you're arguing for. Like if you are looking for a debate and if you're going to engage in a debate, then you also need to know what it is that you are um, advocating for and whatnot. Because I, one of the things I see way too often is people using words and ideas and policies that they don't actually understand completely, that they don't actually know how to defend, uh, and therefore when they go into it's you know they go into an argument and they can only say maybe 240 uh, characters worth of an argument. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, I don't have anything to say after this. This Um, this describes
0: the clubhouse discussion I heard about abolishing the police, which was a bunch of Muslims partaking in this discussion. And one, you know, someone was advocating for it. And then when they got challenged on, you know, just certain basic things, like the objection, like, how do you deal with violent crime? How do you deal with this? And the person was just like, no, we just have to burn everything down. I'm like, I was like, well, that's an interesting perspective, okay. And then they kept getting pushed and the person's response was, well, it's not my job to educate you. I'm not going to explain my position. I, I was just like, okay, I this do, is going to work I don't fast. know what
1: that conversation was, but I think like, that's also one of my other pet peeves is that if you're putting yourself in a position where you're advocating for something yeah, right. you have to actually educate, because advocacy is education. Yeah. The idea that like, if you're advocating for a position, if you're arguing for a position and you've put yourself up on a stage to talk about whatever it is, whether it's abolishing police and prisons, whether it's abolishing ICE, whether it's healthcare, whether Even if it's like, you know, if you're even arguing for the opposite, that we need more police, then yeah, your job is to educate people and respond to criticism. Because if you can't do that, then I'm not sure like why you're advocating what you're advocating, even if I agree with it. I'm not sure why you're advocating it if you cannot even if you cannot. If, if, if your argument cannot even hold like uh, a candle to the criticism or right? is that how you say that? Is that? the it, yeah,
0: yeah, I get what you're saying.
1: Like, you know, so if you can't even do that, like, why are you advocating for this? And then how is this a realistic policy or whatever, if you can't even explain it, right? If you can't even... You know, for example, the, the, when you talk about abolishing police and police, and someone's like, "What do we do about um, you know violent crime?" And, and and the person advocating for abolishing police doesn't even have an answer for that. I mean, a that's really unfortunate because there is literature again out there that explains this, right? That actually yeah. answers how do we deal how do we deal with crime in a policeless society. There is like you know there are even like models for this and everything. And so when someone to me, when, if I, when I hear that, that they can't even answer that question, I'm like, then, and then they say, it's not my job to educate you. Then it's like, well, get off the stage. Yeah. Like real talk, get off the stage and stop advocating for something that you can't even argue for. And that goes for anyone because your job as an advocate for anything is absolutely to educate. Like that's the number one thing. And it's, it's exhausting. Yes. But if you choose to be an advocate for something, you need to be educating on something. Um, but yeah, I think like that. That's my biggest piece of advice is like, if you believe in something like learn it and understand it and fight. For, and if you want to and if you want to fight for it, there are people who believe things and they just believe them. And they're like, I'm not here to argue about this. Yeah. This is just what I believe. I saw a really funny TikTok where this guy said he's like, look, I just believe in free health care. I don't want to argue about it. I don't know how it works. I just know it's a good idea and I really don't want to argue about it. And it was funny because I'm like, yeah, I get that. Like yeah. there, there are certain things I really believe in and I don't really want to like, not want to, but I don't really have the energy right now to go into an entire economic, like a, a breakdown of how that's going to work or whatever. So I don't really talk about it or argue it because I'm like, I believe in this. I, because, yeah. of, you know, I think it's morally the right position and I'm not really I, I'm not in a position right now where I want to argue with people about why this is the right thing and so on and so forth. And I think it's fine to have that. But if you are going to be partaking in advocacy and arguments and debates about particular policy positions or um, things that you believe are mo- morally correct, et cetera, then know yourself. The stuff that I ta- I don't talk about certain things if I do not know enough about them. I may have a very like strong opinion or an opinion on them, but if I don't know enough, I'm not gonna go up there and be like, let me educate you on something that like I know maybe like a little bit about or something of that sort. The things that I talk about are things that I know.
0: What about know the pressure about. to give an opinion on those things on those things sometimes where it's like, well, you know, uh the what's the silence is violence?
1: Yeah, silence is I mean, no, I mean look, like if you're gonna ask me, Sana, like, what's your stance on Black Lives Matter? I'm like, they do next. Like I don't Yeah. That's not something I feel like I need to even argue. Right. Like, obviously, I'm a I'm a very uh, passionate advocate for racial justice and economic justice in this country and everywhere else as well. Like there are certain things that I have no problem giving an opinion on. Um, I'm not going to sit and debate like the value of black life. Right. Like I'm like, that's I don't think that's up for debate. I'm not going to sit and debate like should um uh, what if women lie about sexual assault and i'm like i really am not going to debate this because even the the, you want to talk numbers and science and facts because the actual facts and the studies that we have available show us that the percentage of even women who like uh, uh, will file false reports is so it's near negligible. It's like, I think less than 1% or 1%, something of some like, ridiculous uh, number of that sort. And so I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and debate like those. So there are certain things I'm like, I'm not going to debate. There are certain things where if I'm asked for an opinion, I'm not going to give it only because I'm, if I don't know enough about something I just I think it's a greater disservice for me to offer an opinion on right. something I don't know about than it is for me just to say whatever is popular or whatever people expect of me and so on and so forth. I just don't think that's fair, uh, and I think like we should stop expecting people if they don't if they don't know what they're talking about like to have an opinion on something. Having an opinion on something doesn't automatically mean anything sometimes sometimes it's having an opinion is having an opinion and so um yeah and and, and i i appreciate you even asking that question right like what do you do because you do feel a pressure sometimes to opine on everything right like because people would be like well why aren't you talking about this i saw you talk about this but why aren't you talking about this and it's like well i'm just not that's not like something i know a lot about and so if I opine I'm like I may see something happening and I think this is wrong and this is right but I don't still know enough about the situation where because it's never just one opinion it's not like you're going to go and say I support so and so because then you're going to be inundated with questions and they're like wait did you did you just like follow the you know did you just fall on the bandwagon and like you don't know much about it you didn't say anything else you just showed support for this or that and I'm like it's just you open up a can of worms and sometimes I rather would educate myself in silence than mm-hmm. to, you know, um, allow myself to just like, say whatever the hell, you know, um, I-, I want to say or-, or I'm expected to say because, there's an expectation that you should have an opinion on this. Like sometimes you're like, look, I'm just quietly educating myself. And I think we need to be able to respect that as well. Especially like, Mm -hmm. look, if you know, someone is like a considerate, let's say commentator or someone who is consistent on issues. I think again, it goes back to like, you gotta have a little bit of mercy, like when you're dealing with people. Right. Um, And also, you know, Maybe sometimes people like, I can only speak for myself, but there are times I don't speak on certain issues because I'm exhausted. You know, I'm like, there's a lot, like as a journalist, you are going through so many different things Um, as being in the pandemic, you're going through so many different things. And sometimes you just don't want to talk about something because you are genuinely exhausted. And I don't think we also allow people to just like exist And just Mm. maybe not have an opinion on something, not because they maybe don't have an opinion on it, but maybe they just don't want to share it because they don't have the mental and emotional energy to continue engaging on it because it might be something really heavy. Right. Right. And I, and I, and it's really frustrating to me because I run into this a lot personally, because I get messages all the time. Why are you talking about this? Why are you talking about this? And it's like, yo, like, first of all, like who am I? But secondly, Um, like I just I need to like just relax for a second like let me just chill and it's not that I don't care about this it's just that like I have a lot also going on because I like you am a human being Um, and I wish we had that kind of um, empathy uh, for people as well and I think like unfortunately that's one of the things we've lost with with social media is really um i mean and ironically i would say too because we're so much more connected so you think we'd have more empathy but i actually think we've lost a lot of it
0: yeah i think because we just connect with people who think exactly like us and kind of block out everybody else
1: yeah exactly um and that's why i'm on the social media fast and honestly i think if it wasn't for my career i would have left um, I would have left completely, like I would have left Twitter, I would have left um, Facebook for sure, <laughs> like ages ago. Um, and because I don't, I actually don't think whatever initial value they brought, they don't bring anymore at all. Yeah. And I think that the cons far outweigh the pros of any of these platforms. And I think like I personally long for days where we didn't have these things. I really do, because when you see the impact that these platforms, and the discourse that exists on these platforms is having on your real life, so to speak. I mean, it's all real life, but no, like, the, I
0: mean, they used to be separated, but now it,
1: Oh no, exactly. Now it's all integrated. Right. And yeah. it's just like, you know, I was making a joke about how clubhouse kind of it was ruined for me when I started seeing Twitter discourse on clubhouse. And I was like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> like as soon as I start seeing bad tweets being made into Uh, Clubhouse rooms and bad takes like that, where I'm like, this is not, this is not like, mm -mm, no, this is not fun anymore. Um, When that starts happening, and nuance and critical engagement, fact checking, something as basic as fact checking is, and that goes for anyone on the spectrum. By the way, I'm not talking about any particular. I'm talking about it. That is a problem across the political spectrum. Yeah. Um. When that happens, you know, I'm like checking out and I think we have a real problem where like sensationalism is really the tall order like and and that goes with everything like even intelligent debates intellectual conversations in public spaces are not at all intellectual or or um critical I think they're just sensationalist and um and not honest anymore and um yeah
0: yeah all right, inshallah. So I know that we're a little out of time. You went a little bit over. Any, any last things that you want to share with the audience, places they can follow your work? Uh Obviously, just say draw Facebook and uh, Twitter, but where they can, where can they connect with you?
1: Well, you can certainly follow me on Twitter. I'll probably, I'll probably be back soon. Um, hopefully, with like a much healthier <laughs> approach to Twitter. Um, but on Twitter, I'm just at Sana Saeed. Uh On Instagram, I'm Sana Face. On Clubhouse, I'm also Sana Face. And on Facebook, where I don't know when I'll be returning to Facebook, really, uh, I'm just again Sana Said. Don't confuse me with the Bollywood actress um, which a lot of people do. And I'm like, that's definitely not me. Um, and yeah, you can follow me there. And, um, it's, I will say it's also really interesting. Like, you know, when you ask that question, like, where can people follow you? Right. Like immediately I think about, well, as a journalist, if I were not on any of these platforms, where could you follow me? Like, how do you, mm-hmm. how do people, like the way that people even connect with people whose ideas or takes or whatever that they want to follow, it's really purely on these social media platforms, which are so unhealthy for us in so many ways as ind- as individuals and as uh, collectives. And I'm like, what happens the day that I just decide to quit all of it, right? You open like,
0: a sub stack. <laughs>
1: I, I have a sub stack. I actually have a sub stack. I didn't, I haven't even used it yet. And it's funny. I've got like people subscribing to it. I'm like, how are you finding this? Um, but I do have a sub stack and it's something I do want to do. But it's, it's funny because I think between the pandemic and just work and everything, the idea of even more creative output is a really exhausting thought. Like I'm like, oh, mm. I have to put everything out there. And yeah, but but yeah, exactly. He's <laughs> just open a substat. I'm like, maybe, I guess we're going back to the days of blogs. That's how it all started yeah. anyway. We're just going back to blogging or maybe a podcast. Maybe that's the way forward.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Google Play or whatever podcast player you use. And please rate and review the podcast. As always, if you share it with a friend that's much appreciated, you can check the show notes for all the details and links. See you in the next episode.